Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. Okay, I think we're ready to begin. I apologize for being just a little bit behind, but it's good to be with you today. If you have your Bibles, open them to John chapter 10. We're still in John chapter 10. And uh, we just really have only had one lesson in John chapter 10. We looked at the first six verses last week. Those first six verses, we tried to do some background and thinking about the Judean shepherd, the life of a Judean shepherd, and what a shepherd's life was like in that time, uh, the nature of the shepherd, the calling of the shepherd, uh, and we're comparing that to the life of Christ, of course, because in John 10, Jesus compares himself to a shepherd. And we see him fulfilling Old Testament scriptures because the Old Testament compares God to our shepherd. One of the beautiful metaphors of our God is that of a shepherd. The 23rd Psalm, of course, is the first one that comes to our mind. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd. And Israel thought of God that way before they understood, of course, this triune God and Christ would come in the flesh and who Jesus Christ was. When they heard the Lord, they thought of their God, the, the great Yahweh. Now, in verses 7 through 21, I don't know if we'll get through all of that today or not, but we're going to try and look at it. We're, it's a continuation of this dis, discourse Jesus is having with uh, the Jews around him. When we get to the latter part of John chapter 10, it's going to look like the, the setting changes. And I think in verse 22, I think it says that now it's the time of the dedication of the temple. And I think there's some, remember the Bible is not written in chapter and verse. So the setting changes, but this is almost a continuation. We don't know exactly who Jesus is talking to, except that we still think he's talking to this group of Jews that he's been talking to all through chapter 9, really. Uh, 7, 8, and 9 were kind of like this long discourse that all happened at the same time. And I think this first part of 10 may well be a part of that because he's speaking to a group that does not quite, he's not just speaking to his 12, he's speaking to a whole group of people, including other Jews, perhaps leaders of the Jews, Pharisees and the like. And he is uh, speaking in ways, the last thing we heard last week was that they didn't quite understand. They didn't quite understand this metaphor of the good shepherd. Even though we thought they should, we look at it and say, how can you miss that? You know, Jesus was a good shepherd. We learned all about what a Judean shepherd was. But they have this built in, especially these Jews that are seemingly against Jesus, they have this built in prejudice toward him. They don't like anything he says. They're being challenged. They don't by, like change either. They don't like change either. And they especially change that comes against their position in society. So it says in verse 6, uh, you know, they, they didn't understand this metaphor. This figure Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. This idea that a, a good shepherd calls his sheep, his sheep know his voice. We talked about that last week. I did get the podcast up first thing this morning, so it's up there. Um, the sheep know the voice of their shepherd. We talked about some of that last week. So if you missed it, go back and listen to it. Um, it's a unique thing in nature that sheep understand the voice of their pastor, their shepherd. Pastor is the Latin term for shepherd. And that's where we get the role within the church as the pastor. Now, it seems to me as we start this next section... Jesus is going to set up a comparison between good shepherds and bad shepherds. And he begins by saying in verse 7 that he is the door. Now we spent a little bit of time last week talking about this idea of, still left a few of the notes, the door, the gatekeeper, and the sheepfold. That fold is going to come into play still again. I, I told you there's a difference between a fold and a flock. We're going to talk about that more as we finish out this section of the chapter. But for now, remember the last week Jesus talked about the door. Uh, and what is the door? Well, we want to say, well, it's Jesus because it says so in verse 7. But it's also, uh, as he says, and let me just remind you back here, uh, 
Jesus began this section talking about, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, who does, whoever does not enter the sheepfold by the door. So there's a door into the sheepfold or into the people of God, if you will, but rather climbs in another way is a thief and a robber. So clearly there's, a, there's good people that go through the door and there's thieves and robbers or bad people that go through. So the door is more than just who Jesus is. Because then in verse 7, as we're going to learn today, he says, I'm the door. So I want you to see this dual nature of the door. And last week we tried to talk about that. The door is also the word of God. And Jesus, of course, is the living word of God. So he uses it in a dual nature. So in the first sense, he's saying those who go through the door, let's think of the word of God, the living word of God, the eternal word of God, the word they've always had. You all have always known, God has always revealed his word to them. They had the Old Testament scriptures as the revealed word of God. Those who go through that door, they're the good shepherds. But there's also people who try to go through that door who are not necessarily good shepherds. He calls them robbers and thieves. So that's kind of the setup for today. Now, in verse 7, let's just read 7 through 13 to start with. This is chapter 10, 7 through 13. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not heed them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hireling and cares nothing for the sheep. Let's just stop at this point here and and see what's happening. Jesus is becoming more blunt, more plain to them. Sure, the word of God is the door. And sure, John has told us in the beginning in chapter 1, Jesus is the word. But yet he's being more blunt to them so that they will understand. I'm the door. He says, you can see him almost pointing to himself. I am the door. That's a pretty bold statement. Now he's being very clear with them. I'm talking about myself as the guardian, if you will, of all God's people. And he makes a statement here, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. Who do you think he means by that? It's kind of an all-encompassing statement. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. Well, he's telling them that the Pharisees, that they are the thieves and robbers. Okay. So maybe the Pharisees who are kind of like guardians of the people, they're, they're the lawyers, they're supposed to have the best interest of the people at heart would be thieves and robbers. Be careful not to jump to a conclusion. Yes, Jack. Would it be anybody that would discourage a person to believe in Jesus, that he's the gate? Yeah, that very well could be. People who are setting themselves up against Jesus to discourage the others. False prophets? False prophets, absolutely. Have there been other people claiming to be the Messiah? Oh, yes. Many, there many have been. over the years. We know that there have been. We've read that in some of our other uh, biblical studies here. So he's, they are clearly bad thieves and robbers. But we don't want to be, want to be careful not to say all. When Jesus said all, he doesn't mean all. In Like Moses. Moses was not a thief or a robber. And, uh, Joshua, David. There are obviously some who came before him that were not. But he means all of those who, as kind of you said, Jack, who set themselves up against me. All those who have discouraged you against me. All of those who have made false claims that clearly didn't come true are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not heed them, Jesus says. That's fascinating. But the sheep did not heed them. We're there, you know, in the book of Acts, we read about this, I can't remember the name. There was a particular... I think it might have been in chapter 4 or somewhere there. It was a particular discourse about, we studied it once, about a a false Christ, a false Messiah. And people gathered him around him and said, oh, this is the one. And then he was killed. And then his following withered away. 
So when Jesus says, but the sheep did not heed them, there is this interesting dynamic that there are maybe two kinds of sheep, those who, or, or there were in that day, those who quickly followed all these false prophets and those who were a little more discerning and more wary and wouldn't just follow anyone. Um, and I think that's true today. If this great metaphor of sheep is to be properly understood of us, because it is, I mean, we are the sheep, right? The, the, the sheep are the people of the pasture, the people of God. And the sheep, the sheep are, we can even say the people of the world because everybody's God's child, really. And, and so the goal is to get all sheep into the, to the flock, if you will. But in that sense, um, you know, we talked a little bit about sheep are dumb. You know, we don't want to call ourselves dumb, and, but, but we prove it over and over sometimes uh, how dumb we can be when we believe certain things and follow certain things that we shouldn't. And we look back on it and say, wow, how did I ever do that? You know, <laughs> you know I'm 57, and, and when I was 21, I was running for political office, and I thought I had all the answers. I, I literally did. I, I, I just I couldn't imagine why I wasn't, A, why I wasn't elected, B, why, why I didn't have a future in that, because I really thought the answers were clear. Well, they weren't clear. They're less clear to me today than they were then, <laughs> even after 30-some-odd years. Uh, I haven't figured it all out. I'm not even close. And, and, and with time comes new perspective on things. But uh, in that sense, people here, uh, we sheep, we have to be willing to be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. We have to be people of the word. Jesus is the word. We have to be people of the word like we're doing here this morning as we're studying together. Um, Because in the word, in the spirit of God is life. And that's what he's promising them in this section of scripture. He's going to say in verse 10 that thieves and robbers only come to steal. But the good shepherd, comes to give life and to give it abundantly. Okay? The good shepherd comes to give life and have it abundantly. There is this feeling that we're getting from this passage of Scripture that, I I love this passage of Scripture. I just think John 10 is just one of the most comforting passages in the New Testament. And I love how John continually uses such beautiful metaphors. And I want to go a little deeper with you inside this metaphor, this division between two kinds of shepherds. There wouldn't be, clearly Jesus could only say, I'm the good shepherd if there were bad. Okay, there has to be bad shepherds or Jesus wouldn't use the division. He would just say, hey, I'm the shepherd. So good infers that there are bad and he calls these bad ones robbers and thieves. So who are the bad shepherds? What makes a bad shepherd? Anyone that's saying that they're uh, the, the true God or, or they know the truth and, and, uh, and it, they really don't. Okay. It can also be, I think, a shepherd who is not tending his sheep well. Okay. Mm-hmm. Could it be that there are pastors... Of the sheep that are bad. Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Could that be? Yeah. That's a that's a scary thought. But it's happening. But it's happening, and it has happened, and it will probably continue to happen. And thus, we must Reverend know the difference. Moon would be one. Okay, there are, there are people that have led people astray into cults. They've promised to be. Even the Messiah in, in our lifetime. He's one who has promised to be the Messiah. Um, but I want to get down to the nitty gritty. What about pastors? Not these big cult leaders in the world. What about pastors in this city? What about pastors of any local church? Not too long ago from right around here that was um, arrested. Yeah, um, yeah that's true. Offender. Yeah. So what happens... How do we tell the good from the bad? Through God's word is the best way. But what if they both look that part? I mean, they were obviously they have the calling. Maybe they all have the credentials. They've been ordained. They pass the tests. They 
How do we tell the good from the bad? You still, you still by their actions. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. See, there is no substitute for the testimony of our lives. Right. You can have all the book learning. You can have a PhD in everything, but if you don't live the Christ-like life, then you're not. <laughs> so, I, and I think this is what Jesus is trying to teach us here. Is that because he uses another phrase in verse twelve? He uses this word, the hireling. Okay, the hireling. He says, uh, "Who he who is a hireling and not a shepherd, whose own the sheep are not." You see, he's the one that sees the the wolf coming, and he just drops and runs because he's really not caring for this. He's not willing to lay down his life for the sheep. I think Jesus is painting us a picture here that there will and he's painting them a picture. There are going to be days in the early church and in your lifetime in the church. Remember he's always talking to his disciples too. The twelve who are going to become the next generation of good shepherds. Okay, They're going to be the apostles that lead the church. And he's trying to teach them there are going to be some bad hirelings. You're going to you're going to call some men into this ministry, and guess what? They're going to fool you. They're going to try to fool you, and they're going to be bad. And so here's what you have to do. How do you know the difference? You know the difference because of the testimony of their lives. So in the book of, I think it's First and Second Timothy, the great apostle Paul goes to great length to write about what a pastor should live like. And... A bishop, you know, uses those words interchangeably, bishop and pastor, in that point, presbyter and episcopo in the Greek. You know, he's trying to, to uh, the overseer, in other words, of God's people. He goes to great length to say what they should be like. And we can go back and read those books and see how Paul talks about, um, to Timothy, you know, you need to be of good character and not of a drunken character and only, he says, only have one wife, that's real important. You know, because in that culture and day, people had sometimes many wives and things. Um, but it's important for us to see that it's, it's possible for the church of today, just like it was possible for the church then, to have bad pastors, bad hirelings. Um, ultimately, they can talk a good game uh, sometimes they might have all the gifts and graces that look like a good game. Yep. But in the end, we see the fruit was not on the tree. Um, and sadly, sadly, we don't see that end until sometimes great damage has been done. Uh, we can all think of, I mean, there are, there are some, uh, well, one of the examples that just comes to my mind was, do you remember back in the 70s, there was a great... Um, tragic misleading of people of God down in Guyana mm -hmm. by a man named Jim Jones. Jim Jones yep. Do you remember that? Yeah. They all drank Kool-Aid and at the end and they all died. You know, he had him follow him in his death when it was clear that he was going, he, he was being uncovered, this Jim Jones, as a false prophet, as a false, he developed a cult of following around him and, and, uh, and at the end they discovered, I can't remember how many people, it's been years since I've heard about that. that Almost 300. They all drank this Kool-Aid and they all died, you know, and, and before they were discovered. And they were willing to follow that bad shepherd, okay? Because they had been fooled. And that, that's become a, almost a uh, idiomatic phrase now. Oh, they drank the Kool-Aid. Meaning, you know, it, it stems from that particular incident. That's where that idiomatic expression came into our, into our vernacular. Um, yes? <coughs> Back in the, excuse me, back in the 60s and 70s, the cult uh, burnt down uh, the black churches in the crosshairs. That's right. The, there was the Ku Klux Klan that did that. It was horrible. Um, but does anybody know who Jim Jones was? I've read all about that, but I've, I've forgotten a lot of it now. He, was, he wasn't anybody of any consequence. He, ha he, was, a, he was an ordained minister. Yeah. Where was he ordained? Yeah. And what church was he ordained? I don't know. That I don't remember. The Church of the Nazarene. Oh, no. Is that oh, right? No. I did not know that. Oh, no. I did not it's pretty scary, isn't it? Uh, yeah, that's real scary. 
It's possible to get. get thankfully. Thankfully. And I may have, if I have a little small detail wrong, that maybe he didn't get ordained, but he was, or, he was a minister of the Church of the Nazarene. He began, oh his, began his ministry in the Church of the Nazarene. Wow. Pretty scary thought, isn't it? Yes, it is. So nobody's exempt from this idea. And Jesus, this chapter, he's is, as much as the beauty and security that this is trying to reach out to us, that our good shepherd is watching over us, it's also a warning in this passage to his shepherds who would follow him, the, the beautiful apostles, to be on watch for these hirelings. So it's both a warning and a and a measure of security. And we see there's a, there's a phrase here when he says in verse 9, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And he will go out, he will go in and out and find pasture. That, that if we could understand the Hebrew mind, that in, he will go in and out and find pasture. That was a Hebrew idiomatic phrase for uh, being life was secure. You can go in and out in peace and safety. They understood when they heard that. That phrase that Jesus was using, to go in and out. Uh, and that's the way we want to live life, isn't it? We want to be able to leave our homes. We want to be able to go into our homes. We want to go able to into church and out church. And we just want to be safe and secure and know that we have security around us. And really, ultimately, we're living in difficult times. You know, we now have church security ministries that we wouldn't have thought of not too long ago in my lifetime, not too long ago, even within my short lifetime, we wouldn't have thought about having to have church security. But now it, it, it's, there's, there's evil all around us, and it targets the church many times. Um, so we want to be careful with how we live. And, and, and what I think one of the things that this chapter is going to teach us is that ultimately, if we find our green pasture, our still waters, in the good shepherd, okay, then it doesn't matter what happens to us. Okay? The beautiful people in the church in South Carolina that the guy walked in on a Wednesday night and shot and killed, they were, it's not that they weren't in a good pasture. It's not that they weren't drinking from cool still waters. They were. It's not that they weren't walking through the valley of the shadow of death. They were. It's not that God wasn't with them with his rod and his staff. He was. It's not that God hadn't anointed them with oil and that their cup was running over. It was. But evil still happens. And it did to them. And at that point, guess what? Their lives were taken in this world. But they were translated into the good pasture. The cool waters of heaven. Amen. Okay, so we, we must not let ourselves get wrapped up into a false sense of security. Oh, because we're Christian. Oh, because we're living our lives for Christ. Oh, because we're doing this, this, and this. Nothing bad's going to happen to us. That's not what Jesus says anywhere in the gospel. Okay, there is no false sense of security. In fact, there are Christians that think that way. There are Christians that, that preach some type of prosperity and and security in, in a sense. But you know, there are even Christians, maybe you've heard them, maybe you've listened to their preaching that have taught that nothing bad happens to those that are truly gods. Mm -hmm. yep. and, that, and that you don't struggle. If you're really gods, you don't, it's called the prosperity gospel. Yes. You know, you, you, you're going to be blessed beyond. If you would just believe rightly, uh, you could be healed if you just, physically healed if you just believe rightly. You could have riches of material wealth if you would just believe rightly. Joel that you can, Joel uh, there's, there's a name that comes to mind and many people would see him as one of those type of preachers. I, 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 I like, there's so many things I like about Joel Osteen. Yeah, I, I really do. I mean, I, but I can't quite go all the way with him because I feel mm -hmm. he goes too far into that. I really do. He's a younger guy with dark hair. Yeah, yeah, he is. He, he, he's, I think he means well. I just I can't go all the way with him, so I don't want to, 
I don't want to talk bad about other preachers. There's probably somebody out there talking bad about me. But, uh, but I do think, <laughs> but I do think, I, I, I just, uh, I, they'd have to fight me if they did. I see Joel's heart. I see a lot of Joel's heart, and I know he wants to, uh, to do what's right, I think. Um, but, but, you know, I just want you to hear that this is not the gospel. The gospel is not a call to peace and prosperity in this world. In fact, just the opposite. Jesus is going to say before we're through with this study of John, in this world you will have trouble, That's right. but take heart because I've overcome the world. He's going to say, uh, when, the, when, the, <laughs> when the disciples uh, take to him, we've, look, we've got two swords, he said, it's enough. There, there, there's going to be conflict in this world, and we're going to have to deal with it, and we're going to have to live in it. In fact, so much so that one of the passages that I think we should all memorize, that most of us don't, is from the, from, uh, the book of, some call it the gospel of according to Paul, the book of Romans. Okay, the book of Romans, it's not a gospel, but some call it that. Uh, the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 17. Does anybody know what verse 8, 17 says? Everybody wants to quote chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wonderful verse, and everybody wants to quote it. Or maybe we want to quote you know, the end of the, book, end of the chapter, verse chapter 8, where he says, Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beautiful verses. But do you know what's sandwiched in between those 30-some verses? Right in the middle of that chapter? Verse 17. Therefore, we are heirs with Christ if we suffer with Christ. The call of a Christian is a call to suffering. It's a call to suffering. It's a call to prosperity in spiritual matters, not in physical matters. Many have been the saints through the ages who have literally lived poor, beleaguered, unbelievable lives of pain and sorrow only to find their only joy in heaven. That's just the way of the world. That's, that's the call. That's the gospel we preach. That's the gospel we better preach. So that we can preach to people that are already in pain and already in poverty and already in tribulation. Not that if you'll believe, come on up and there's a, you know, you're good, Jesus is going to take away all your problems. No. But that the peace of God that passes our understanding, as Paul says it in Philippians, will guard your hearts and minds while you're in this world in trouble and tribulation. And that there is coming a day when there is green pasture, Amen. when there is cool water, when we there is... You, you see, so I'm getting a little off and preachy here. I'm sorry about that. Yes. That's okay. What I'm trying That's to say, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that we cannot overlook this comparison between good and bad shepherds because it's real and it's still present and we need to be careful and there's only one litmus test and that's the fruit that's on the tree that's the life okay my mind was immediately drawn in preparation to this sermon my mind was immediately drawn to the life of Jim Baker Jim Baker as you remember was the charismatic preacher what's that I was trying to remember their names. Yeah, we Jim, and Tammy, Jimmy, mm-hmm. yeah. Jimmy yeah. Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. Jim and Tammy Faye were charismatic individuals. Very, He was an incredibly good preacher, mm-hmm. a likable guy. He founded this ministry called PTL, you know, it'd be up yeah. on television. Started small and just grew huge. And in the process of all of that, Jim, and, Jim fell from grace big time through, through a public sin with a woman. But... But even at that, he was continually disparaged by some for wearing, you know, Rolex. I remember the Rolex watches and, you know, $5,000 suits and, and driving. And these, these things, and if you remember back in those days, I think this would be the 70s, maybe the 80s, there was a, a, co- a comedy songwriter, Ray Stevens. Mm-hmm. Do you remember Ray oh, Stevens? Yeah, very well. Uh, he, he wrote a comedy song, a parody type song. Would Jesus wear a Rolex on his television show? <laughs> so he, what was he trying to do? He was trying to point out something's inconsistent here. Now, I'm not trying to judge Jim Baker. Okay, now I'm going to tell you a good story about Jim Baker. You know, Jim and Tammy Faye ultimately broke. Their lives were shattered. They lost their ministry, ended up in divorce. Um, Jim lost everything. Tammy went on to uh, die from cancer. 
But as best we know, does anybody know where Jim Baker is today? Yeah, he's on television again. In Florida. Is it Florida? No. No, it's not Florida. Texas, I thought. I don't remember. He's in Branson, Missouri. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Does anybody, after after a long time out of the public spotlight, Jim ended up in Los Angeles, California, living in a one-room hostel in downtown L.A., ministering to the broken people of L.A. In a hospital that had been converted to a ministry center. Jim Baker ended up 180 degrees from where he was. Jim Baker found repentance. Jim Baker wrote a book about his mistrust. Found a younger wife, too, didn't he? I don't remember that. I don't know. Might have. Might have. She's 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 10 times better looking than God bless him. God bless him. Uh, But the the point I'm trying to make is that Jim Baker found repentance. Yes, he did. You with me? Yeah. He turned his life around. That's amazing. And today he's a beautiful man of God, yes. and he and he's and he's humble, and he's not he's not trying to do what he did with PTL anymore. No, so no. that's a great story of re- restoration, okay? And I tell it only because I want you to know there are real possibilities. And, he, and he's got a working ministry. And he learned the glamour of attention, gold, and riches didn't pay off. And if you read his book, he truly speaks out against it. Uh-huh. He confessed his sin. I love that story. Yeah. Um, well. Yes, ma'am. In Puerto Rico, we had a, one of those ministers that would get on the radio, and he would say, put your hand on the radio and send me some money. Yes, put your hand on the radio and touch, <laughs> send me some money. Oh, my. I, I tell you, it's scary to think how quickly we fall for those things. I remember walking into a hospital room of a man from our church, very elderly, this was 15 years ago probably, um, and he was watching one of those famous TV evangelists, kind of like the one you're thinking of in Puerto Rico, but he was on TV, and he was literally saying, put your hand on the TV, and you're going to receive faith. And, and then, of course, send me a gift of X amount of dollars, and God's going to just prosper it exponentially. And I thought, oh, my dear. And this poor man, you know, this poor man was believing it. Uh, and his family was concerned he was going to send them all his money. Now, and the elderly he, will do that. And they'll yeah. do that. They, they can get taken very easily. Well, and, and people that are ill, too. I, one of the, I had a lady that worked for me that um, had cancer. And she had found this big, huge lump on January 1st. And six months later, she had done nothing about going to the doctor because... Um, she got on the phone with one of these preachers that said, call in for prayer. Hmm. And the person that prayed with her said, you're healed. Hmm. You have no worries. You're healed. And she believed that and, and didn't told, go to the doctor. And her would be putting her faith down if, if she didn't yeah. go ahead. So she did not go. And um, six months after that, she was gone. Yeah. And she suffered a terrible death. So sad. But she told so sad. I remember sitting in her living room with her one Sunday, and she cried, and she said, she said, I made such a huge mistake. She said, God will never forgive me for that. Mm. And I remember praying with her, and um, it, it was sad. So she realized the sadness she, of her mistake. That's, no, that's the good news. Yeah. No, she, she repented. She, yeah. Yeah, I mean, she, she was... She may have been a, a lounge down. singer on Saturday night, but she sang in her church choir on Sunday yeah. morning. <laughs> well, that's that's a, you know this is the this is the real truth. I want to spend a little time with you two talking about the good shepherds. Mm-hmm. We've we've talked a little bit about the bad, but there is a word. I wrote two Greek words on the board for you this morning: agathos and kalos. Both of these words in the Greek language could be interpreted as good. Something that is good. There is a difference, though. This one, th- this one here, agathos, could be a Greek word that could be used, meaning of, let's say we talk about the good doctor, okay? And he's just a good man. He's not only a good physician, but he's a good man, okay? He's, he lives a good life, and he's just thought of, he's got a good reputation. He's just a good man. Just like so you might say, Luke. the good doctor, okay? But that's not the word Jesus uses. 
when he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd. In every one of these cases, when he says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd, Jesus uses the word kalos in the Greek language. I wonder what that word means. Mm. It's, uh, it means good also, but it means also beautiful, winsome, lovely. It carries a connotation that is beyond just integrity and it's all-encompassing. Mm. It's, a, it's a word used for something that is breathtaking. Okay, And he uses, Jesus uses this word. It would have been fine for him to use this word, agathos. But the problem, if he had used this word, is lots of other people could be called that too. You see? Jesus specifically knew, he knew, these are little things we miss if we don't see scripture in Greek. The the New Testament. We we miss these things. This word is real important. Jesus isn't just any good man. He's the good man. He's the good shepherd. Do you see the difference? Yeah. He's the winsome one. He's the beautiful one. He's the savior. He is God. No beauty could be compared to God. So this is the beauty of that. I, I wanted to point that out to you. This is, there's a reason why Jesus uses this analogy of the good shepherd. There is no cost too high for a good shepherd to protect his sheep. That's right. Okay? I can't say that I understood that when I went into ministry, when I followed a call to be a pastor. I I can't say that I totally understood that when I was younger. But the longer I've lived in it, the more I've come to realize there simply is no call. If you're going to accept the calling, and it has to be a calling to be a pastor. I'm speaking of shepherds of God's church now. If you're going to accept that calling, it can't be because you think you're a gifted speaker It can't be because you think you have great knowledge of the Bible. It can't be because you are gifted in administration and you know how to put together teams and you can grow an organization. It can't be because of any of those things. Those may all be good gifts, and they are. But if you want to be a pastor, if you want to be a shepherd of God's people, you have to follow the model of Jesus. And that means that what he says in the end here Verse 11, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Ultimately, the pastor of God's sheep must be willing to lay down his life for theirs. Now, we're all called to do that. Jesus says there's no greater love than to lay down your life for a friend, okay? But there is a sense in which the pastor is called to a life of sacrifice. Now, modern day pastors have no idea, no idea what that calling looked like in the first century or the third century or the sixth century. We live in modernity today, and I'm thankful for the modern gift that I've been given to live in a nice home, to have a family, to drive a couple of different cars, to be able to put our kids in school. I'm very thankful for that. But I have no idea what it took to be a pastor for the first 1,800 years of God's people. Or let me just say the first 1,900 years. It's only been in the last century that we have become so modern. And and may I even say for the whole history of God's people, because out there in the world, except for modern America and Western Europe, most pastors live in abject poverty. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Go to the Go to the the mission fields in the Far East or Africa or the Middle East, wherever. Go to the mission fields. And the pastors live on dirt floors. They don't make more money than their congregation does. Most of them make less than their congregation does. The calling to be a pastor is not the calling to uh, wealth and fame. And so we have great temptation in our world today. Great temptation. And so what kind of leaders do we look for? And I know this church is in the middle of a pastoral transition and we're searching for God's person for this church or the board is. Um, and and that's, not a, that's, a, that's not an easy task because there's so much to consider. And 
my voice is to say this morning, number one priority. Nobody will ever convince me differently. The number one priority of any pastor is to love the sheep. That's right. To love them unconditionally as Christ loves his church. Just like a husband is to love his wife unconditionally. If you can't love the sheep, get out of the pulpit. If you can't love the sheep, get out of the pulpit. I have heard pastors stand in pulpits and condemn sheep. And I just want to say, get out of the pulpit. Okay? If you can't love the sheep, get out of the pulpit. I can't say that strongly enough. So, our church, not our churches of our type in the, in the modern world, modern world churches, modern, have this upside down. We think what we need is great, our great CEOs. We think often the, the churches of our, of our world today, and I, I'm not condemning this church, I'm just saying in general, modern churches, they think they need great CEOs. We need people that understand organizational management, and we need people that are so gifted and charismatic in their abilities to lead a team, and they'll just grow. You know, all of that's good and fine. But the reality is, if you don't have a man who can love the sheep and who's anointed with the Spirit of God to preach the word, that's first. If you don't have that, you don't have anything. Because anyone can build an organization, but only the Holy Spirit can build a true church. Okay, and we're going to talk in just a minute now about what that church means, but Rhonda had I think thought. a lot of times, too, I have seen that um, it seems like one of the things that is really important um, by the pastor, um, and I'm not saying it's not a good thing because, yes, you want to grow your church, but the numbers are always such a big thing. Oh, do we have this many, we need to have this many people. Well, are we loving the people that we have? Right. You know? Right. But I, I blame right. the Nazarene church for that. The, the, I'm talking about general, the general church. Okay. Really am. Not, not our local pastors so much. Well, I don't, I, don't blame they, just the, I don't blame the Nazarene church. I just blame churches in general. Right, yeah. <laughs> That's true. Because a lot of other denominations exactly. do the same thing. They do the same thing. <laughs> yeah. If the numbers is the only thing yeah. that counts, well, that's not but, true. But People it's, count. I mean, like, general. Well, I'm talking about the, our the denomination, church, so to speak. Yeah, the, the denomination. denomination. Yeah. And here's the where, of our let, let, let me, I, I hear what you're saying, Rhonda, and I want to guide you into that thought, because this is truth that we cannot put numbers first. We may say, well, we got numbers are critical. We, if we don't have X number of dollars, then we can't make our budgets. Well, then maybe our budgets are wrong. I agree but there that. is absolutely no place in the New Testament that says the church of Jesus, the successful church of Jesus Christ is a church of great numbers. Because a church of great numbers is obviously reaching great numbers of people. That's not what the Bible teaches. Okay. In fact, it teaches the opposite. I've heard that so much. I know. It drives me nuts too. You know, are we loving the people we have? And sure, you want to grow up, you want new people to come, but first let's love the ones we And you see, that's right. Here's the formula for success right here. Okay. The formula for success in the church of God is to understand that only the Holy Spirit grows churches. That's right. In the book of Acts, it says that the people were devoted to the teachings of the apostles, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship with one another, and to prayer. That's Acts 2.42. And then in, later on in that chapter, it says, and God added to the to church, church daily yes, yes. those who were being saved. It does not say, and because they did this, this, and this, God added to the church. God adds to the church those whom he knows belong in that church. Because when we understand that kind of love for the people, God says, aha, here's a church that I can bless. Here's a church that I know I can send my, my greatest gifts to, which are people. And they'll be loved and taken care of. See, I think God knows this. Yes. So we have to have this idea of, of uh, the love for the flock. Now, I want to talk about the difference between the flock and the fold before we run out of time today. Um, this is a fascinating set of scriptures. There are two more Greek words, okay, I'm going to give you. Let me go and write them here. Uh, Poine, if I can, let me spell it wrong. Aulis. Okay, these are two more Greek words. Okay, now, if you can see the bottom one, some of you in the back might, it's A-U-L-E-S. These are obviously English transliterations of Greek words. 
Poimne and Alice. Okay, Poimne and Alice. What do these words have to do with our scripture today? Let's look at verse, um, the, the, we're going to transition to the next section, okay? We won't go all into it because we don't have the time to, but I, I need to transition to you there. In the next section, Jesus repeats his thought, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Those are, that's a powerful thought right there. <laughs> As the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. We've been talking about that. The pastor must love them enough to lay down his life for them. That's the model Jesus is giving to us. And then verse 16 is where I want to concentrate. Jesus said to them, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will heed my voice. So there shall be one flock, one shepherd. Okay? That's very important. I have other sheep. Which is us. Okay? And they are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will heed my voice. So there shall be one flock and one shepherd. So what do we have here? Jesus is setting up for us two different groups of sheep. There's a fold and a flock. Okay? The fold is a group of sheep. There could be many folds. Okay, let's say we're all shepherds in here, and we all have our own folds that we're responsible for. But if someone looking outside sees all these sheep, they see one flock. You with me? So the flock is the greater universal whole, and the fold is the individual groups. You with me so far? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, in the Greek, when Jesus is speaking these words, it's, as it's written in Greek, the original scriptures we know in the New Testament were written in Greek, the earliest fragments we have, all written in Greek. And in that Greek language, it says this. In 16, he says, there are other sheep that are not of this fold. And the word he uses there, okay, let me get this straight for you. The word he uses there is alis. The fold is alis. Okay? And then he says, but I must get them and they will, uh, they will hear my voice. So there shall be one flock. Poimne. Jesus is clearly making a delineation between folds and flocks. So that there will be one poimne, one shepherd. Okay? What he's now, talking about is denominations. It's, it's, which they knew nothing of back exactly. then. Okay? But let me tell you something interesting. This just fascinates me to no end. Yeah, me too. In the first translated scriptures, okay, the, so the scriptures, we have all these books written in Greek, okay? The Old Testament written in Hebrew, mostly Aramaic. It, it was finally written into a, uh, all into one, into Greek, about 250 years before Christ. That was called the Septuagint, Okay? And had all that Old Testament canon of scriptures. And then, you know, in the first hundred years, there's all these New Testament books being written. And, and, and these are just letters. These are pastoral epistles. These are gospels. Nobody knows that they're going to come together as this one great book that everybody's going to preach the world with called the New Testament. But that forms over time. Okay? And the, the, the church leaders of the day begin to say, well, that letter doesn't fit. This letter does. This is sound doctrine. That one's not. And we have this evolving of the canon of the New Testament, okay, into, and it takes about 300 years for that to happen, okay? So it's late 4th century when we finally get an official list of, okay, this is the New Testament. This has been universally accepted. And, and so into that voice, into that structure, we see in, a, in the late, right around the time that this, New Canon Testaments being voted on by the councils of the church. There is the Pope Damasus, who's the Bishop of Rome. Pope Damasus is his name. He commissions a man named Jerome, and he's historically known as Saint Jerome, to take the whole of the Bible and to translate it into the language of the Roman people, which was Latin. Okay? Because he's the head of the Church of Rome. And he wants a Bible in Latin to help spread the word to the whole. It's not a bad task. It's nothing wrong with doing that. And Jerome sets about that. We've been to the place where his cave is down under the Church of the Nativity where he, where he sat there and translated the Bible. He did his best to use the Greek and the Aramaic and all that he could. 
He did his best, I'm sure, but he made one critical flaw. St. Jerome made one critical flaw in his translation. And if you pick up a Latin Vulgate Bible, which is the official Bible of the Roman Catholic Church, the official Bible is the Latin Vulgate, okay, still, after all these years, St. Jerome made a mistake. When St. Jerome wrote this, he translated it into Latin. He used poimne both times. He used poimne both times. What does it say if I read this? I have other sheep that are not of this poimne, this universal fold. And I'm going to bring them also and they will heed my voice so there shall be one universal fold, one poimne. If you read it that way, then you're seeing there's only and ever always going to be only one universal fold. That's not what what the scripture, it's not what John said. John said there are many folds, but there will only be one flock. See, the Roman Catholic Church has always used that translation to say this this is why the Roman Catholic Church is the only one true church. And there is only one fold and only one shepherd, and that's the Bishop of Rome. I'm not criticizing them. I'm not putting down. I think they're beautiful. I used to be one. I know some of you are, have been there too. I'm just saying they got that wrong. Yeah. Translations, historical discoveries have proven it. We all know it. It's not right. Okay. Now, does that mean that it's okay for there to be 30,000 denominations? No, I'm not justifying that. I think Protestants have been way too... Easy to split the church. Way too easy. What it does mean, though, is that God understands where we are. God knew this wasn't going to be a perfect situation. God knew that there were going to be many folds, but one flock. And this is why, even from the beginning, there were these two folds. The the, the Eastern Church, you know, I've taught you some about the Eastern Orthodox, okay? The, The churches as it first grew in Jerusalem and Antioch and and, and then the Western folds, the Roman folds, okay, the Latin folds. So even from the beginning, there were these almost two folds developing. But yet one flock. They had universal communion until the year 1054 when it was finally severed. Okay, Protestant Reformation, of course, another 400, 500 years after that. But my, my point that I want to make to you this morning is that God, our good shepherd in Jesus Christ, knows that there is only one flock. What we have to do is make sure we're part of that flock. Right. I'm not out to convert the world to the church of the Nazarene. Okay? I'm not. I love the church of the Nazarene. It's given me a home for 34 years. It's given me a mission field. It's given me credentials. I think we have an awful lot going for us, but we are not it. You with me? Yeah. But neither is the Roman Catholic Church. That's right. And neither is the Baptist Church. Neither is the Methodist Church. You, know, you do see what I'm trying to say? That's there right. are many folds, but one flock. So then we can ask the question rightfully, okay, well, how do we discern the flock? How do we discern what the flock is? We can see, you know, here we, we Baptists and Nazarenes together, we want to have fellowship. We want to say we're part of the same Christian church. Well, how do we determine what the flock is? They can never agree on everything. And, um... so, so the question becomes, you're right, they never agree on everything. So how do we determine, do we agree on enough that we can call ourselves part of the same flock? Yeah. That's the big question. By our actions. By our actions, but I want to go even deeper. There's something else I've been teaching you. By faith. the historic faith. The histo- what, is the, what is the statement of the historic faith? Little card I gave you a couple weeks ago. The Nicene Creed. Yeah. Somebody asked me why I'm a, I'm a creedal Christian. I believe we have to be creedal Christians. It says in the very beginning of the Church of the Nazarene's historical statement, we are creedal. We believe in them, accept the creeds of the first five Christians. If we can't say amen to what's in those creeds, then we are not part of the flock. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. That's, I think, the definitive statement. That's why those statements were made. Because remember the heresies that were developing, the Arians and the Gnostics and all of these, these docetists. These, these, the church had to keep coming back to saying, but that's not right about Jesus. That's not right about Jesus. This is what's right about Jesus. 
So here's the, 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 the historic creed of the Christian faith. The most historic, the most all-encompassing is the Nicene. It's properly called the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, written over two different series of time in two different great councils, Council of Nicaea, Council of Constantinople, the first and the second great councils of the church. They formed that creed, and it hasn't changed, and it's what keeps all... And here's what's beautiful. Here's what's beautiful. The Catholics believe in that creed, and so do the Nazarenes, and so do the Orthodox, and so do the Baptists, and so do the Presbyterians. I've learned it in the Methodist Church. In the Methodist Church. We all agree in that creed. Yeah. That's what it means to be Christian. Now, we may have subtle differences. You know, the Presbyterians might think, well, yeah, but when you're saved, you're always saved. Or the Baptists might think that or something. And, and we'll talk about that kind of theology as we go through this book, because a lot of it comes from this book of the Gospel of John. But what I want you to hear is God knew. Does, is God surprised that there are so many differences amongst Christians? No, no he's not surprised. I don't think so can't surprise God. No. <laughs> would he like us to all be one in unity? Absolutely he would. Yeah. He's gonna, we're going to hear it when we get to John 17. Jesus prays, Oh, Father, that they may be one, even as you and I are one. He says to yeah. the Father in his high priestly prayer. So we must always be striving for unity. I have learned in, in the last 20 years of my life, I have really learned the value of ecumenical Christian dialogue. I have sat down in a room to pray with Lutherans and Catholics and Baptists and all kinds of people. We've had mutual prayer groups together. And I've learned to appreciate the value of those brothers and sisters because that's what they are. Our distinctives may be different. We may think we need to, uh, to, to be distinctively in, in one way or another different, but our faith is ultimately there. Mm-hmm. Our faith is ultimately the same. There will always and forever be one flock, yep. but many folds. Yep. Now, when, can we ever be all one flock and not and all one fold? Can that ever happen? Well, it will happen in heaven. Yep. I guarantee you when that. When the Lord returns, it'll happen. It will happen in heaven. Will it happen before that? I can't predict the future. But it won't happen without dialogue. That's why I think there's benefit to ecumenical dialogue. Amen. Do you know that the biggest ecumenical dialogue, of course, is always with the Roman Catholic Church because historically they've always been seen in the world as the leading first church. But that's because, remember, the Eastern Orthodox were always behind the, the, in the, the suffering countries of Muslim domination and were never really historically able to flourish and grow in the free world since the 14th century, since, well, really since the 7th century, but especially since the 14th century. So, but now in the modern world, interestingly enough, the Orthodox churches are really growing in the modern world as they're getting out there now. But historically, that dialogue's always happened with the Roman Catholics. And so most, most denominations, there's the World Council of Churches, all these things, they send their delegates, and they have every so many years and time and talk, and they, they always talk about the possibilities of unity and things, and, and it always breaks down over certain doctrinal differences, of course, and, and authoritarian differences over who's in charge. Um, but there is this dialogue, and what I want you to hear today is that dialogue is good. That dialogue is a good, healthy thing because we're working, we're praying that we may all be one. If not in fold, at least in flock. An understanding of love for, the, for our brothers and sisters. Amen. Well, that's a lot for one lesson. Uh, we've introduced this next section, 14 through 21. We'll, t- we'll take that section next week and start talking about, uh, about that. And uh, for today, though, what... Any last questions or thoughts or comments from anyone? You've been very kind to listen to my preachiness today. You're very kind. Sorry about that. (laughs) But I I do appreciate your taking time to learn and taking time to open your hearts and minds. So let's always do that. Let's always... Because I'm not the good teacher, that's for sure. But I want to help. I wish you, you could be our pastor. Well, you're kind. You know, that's, those things are only up to God. And God, God probably knows better. <laughs> let's, let's pray this morning as we close. <laughs> let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for time together in your word. With your good shepherd. 
Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and minds from this lesson today. Cover over anything I've said that's wrong. Do not let anyone be led astray, but lead and guide us by your Spirit into all truth, as you will promise to do, even in this very book of John. Thank you, Father, for these that are here and those that are not able to be here. Be with them and bless them until we meet again. And we ask this in the strong name of our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.